morning again. I wanted to say, as I look out and see um, a lot of familiar faces and a lot of unfamiliar faces, we're glad you're here this morning. Um, one of the things that the Lord has uh, seemed to be doing in my life is reminding me that the church is far bigger than I think it is often. And even over the last few months, as we've had uh, people um, stay in our home that we didn't know because of church connections, um, stop by through town um, for short periods of time or for long periods of time. We have friends even on their way through tomorrow. Um, so we're going to meet for donuts in the morning. But I just wanted to say, however long you're in town, welcome. And we're glad that you're here this morning for worship. If you have your Bible or there's a Bible, if there's somebody else's Bible nearby, let me encourage you to grab it and be quick on the draw and open it up to Psalm 104. One of the things we notice in the scriptures, the pattern in the scriptures, is that oftentimes there are key events that we read about in the Bible. We read them once, and then they keep showing up again and again and again, as if with the passage of time, the people of God are seeing the significance, the meaning, and the impact of those key events over and over again, and they want to keep them before them as they worship and as they live their daily lives. Psalm 104 is one such place. It, it's a reflection upon a commentary on the very first chapter of the, book of, of the book of Genesis, the very first chapter in your Bibles. It's a reflection on the, God's creation of the world and how God sustains his world. It shows up in this passage that we'll read in just a moment through the words that are used, through the imagery that comes about, that we hear echoes from that, the, the, the six days of creation. Some scholars have even suggested that we could divide this passage into seven seven equal parts or seven divisions so that even the very structure and the way that it was written reflect the seven days of God's creative work and the seventh day being his day of rest. I want us to consider this morning these words though as a story and as I read them I want you to hear them as a story of the king and his kingdom and to see to ask ourselves is this the story that shapes the lives that we live the world that we live in. So I'm going to read for us out loud Psalm 104 in its entirety. It's about 35 verses long. And then we will pray, and then we will consider these words together this morning, what they mean, what they say, what they mean, and what they mean for us as God's people this morning in Manhattan, Kansas. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You are clothed with splendor. Excuse me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they, may, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. 
The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make the darkness and it is you make the dark you make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about the young lions roar for their prey seeking their food from God when the sun rises they steal away and lie down there in their dens man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening O Lord how manifold are your works in wisdom you have made them all the earth is full of your creatures here is the sea great and wide which teems with creatures innumerable living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they are smoke and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, again this morning, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would send forth your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would take us to the place where you are, that place where you dwell, so that we might know you, and through your word, that we might be changed. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray all of this. Amen. A number of years ago, I saw a movie, and it's the, the statute of limitations is long enough ago, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil it for you. Sorry to do that. The movie's called Arlington Road, and I can't remember enough to know whether I could even recommend it to you or not, so let's say not. It's a story of a college professor who teaches classes on terrorism and extremist groups. He's passionate, his students are fully engaged in what he's teaching, and he is fully engaged in what he's teaching. Lives, in a, lives a comfortable suburban life, has a perfect family, perfect neighborhood, life is great. Until one day, they get new neighbors who have a son the same age as his son. And they begin to play, they strike up a friendship. And this man, either due to his teaching and his profession or whatever, begins to get suspicious because he notices a few things about his new neighbors that just don't seem quite right. He finds plans for nearby public monument build buildings in their home that shouldn't be there. He finds out that the, that the dad actually changed his name and is hiding something. And as his, as his paranoia grows, this professor begins to think, I think I've got terrorists living across the street. I've got to do something about this. And so he explores more and he searches more. He has a friend at the FBI whom he tells that he's, he's worried that they're plotting some, not, some big disaster to happen. His friend doesn't believe him because he's got no evidence. His professor's wife doesn't believe him 
because it seems just too far gone. They assume he's too enmeshed in the content of what he's teaching, and his, his vision is clouded by that. As the movie progresses and as the, the heat increases, if you will, with the passage of time, we realize that he's right, but no one believes him. And so he sets out to stop the plot. He sets out to do something to, to make known and to, to hinder the, this, this, the events that they're trying to, to plot and plan. But as we get to the climax of the movie, what we realize is his neighbors know exactly what they're doing. His neighbors moved in next door to him because they knew that he would be paranoid about them. And in fact, at the, at the, the pivotal scene of the movie, what we realize is as he thinks he's living out this story of stopping the, their plot to destroy this federal building, as he's driving around town trying to stop them, what we realize is they've structured his life, his story, such that he's the one who's going to bring about the destruction that they're plotting. He thinks he's living one story that goes, I know what I'm doing, I'm helping stop this, th this threat, I'm going to save the world, if you will. But at the end of the day, they're the ones who are writing his story. And the destruction happens. And the movie ends with news reports of how this professor took his job too seriously and couldn't handle the pressure he was under and caused these catastrophic events. He thought he was living one story, and as it turns out, somebody else was writing the story for him that he was living. I want to make the case this morning, as we approach Psalm 104, that there's a story that most of us are living, whether we know it or not. And it's, I'm not trying to say that it's a grand conspiracy. It's the nature of living in this part of the world in such a day and time as this. The story that most of us, I think, in some way, shape, or form are living goes something like this. The earth has been around for a long time. At some point, humanity, human beings, appeared on the earth. And at first, if we were to travel back and see these early human beings, they might not quite look like us. A little rougher around the edges. Life was crude. Their clothing was very simple, if they had any clothing at all. As they, through the process of trial and error, through the process of learning, they were able to develop fire. They were able to begin to fashion tools and make their world better. They were able to create clothing for themselves that would cover more of them and keep them warm, that allowed them to spread out to further parts of the globe where the temperatures were more effective on them, more affecting on them. With the passage of time, humanity became smarter. They developed not only fire, but they were able to fashion tools, and they were able to build buildings and structures to live in. They didn't have to be nomadic. They weren't driven so much by the seasons as they used to be. And with the passage of time, humanity got better and improved its way of life. Humanity started to think and learn about the world they lived in. They began to understand more and more what it was to be who they were in this world that they found themselves in. And as time increased, they got better. And they worked hard, and they learned more, and they thought more. They developed political structures. They developed ways of living together in community for their own protection and safety. They developed ways of thinking about their world that we would today call philosophy. They even began thinking systematically and carefully about the gods or God that they worshipped, what we would call religion or theology. And as time passed, what we would see is... They continued to be somewhat crude in some ways, but in other ways they began to advance and advance and advance. And their technology got better, and life got better. 
Now, many in today's world would look back at these, these earlier times and say they were still superstitious. They believed in magic. They believed in ghosts. They believed in things they could not see or explain. And so they came up with stories to explain. But with the passage of time, they learned. They'd worked hard, and life got better. And as this story continues, we, get, we find ourselves today with automobiles that allow us to drive around the country. We can actually get into vehicles that will help us to fly, creatures like us not made to be able to fly. Indeed, we have televisions in our pockets that can keep us entertained almost wherever we are. The moral of the story as it unfolds is this. Work hard, study hard, think hard, try hard, and eventually you'll be better. Now, most scholars in today's world would say the telling of the story that I just recounted for you has its flaws and its problems and is limited in scope. And yet, I think we would agree that at least portions of that story we see at work in our own lives today. That with the progress of time, with the progress of science, with the progress of theology and philosophy, life has gotten better. We're able to live in better, better lives than our ancestors were. Do you see that story reflected in your own life? Are you living in that story? More importantly, though, I want to ask ourselves this morning as we consider Psalm 104, how does that story stand up with what the Bible teaches? I want to ask that question by considering several of the implications of that story as it unfolds and how we would respond through Psalm 104. You see, one of the implications of this modern telling of the story of our history goes something like this. God becomes confined to our experience of him. We don't want to see ourselves as superstitious as those who believe in ghosts. And yet one of the ways that people have adapted to life in the modern world when it comes to their faith is to say, this is private. This is my belief system. And our experience of God becomes the measure of our faith. We understand him based on oftentimes emotion, based on oftentimes our own private feelings and our own private thoughts. Faith becomes a private matter for us. And yet in stark contrast, do you hear the picture as the story unfolds of this king and his kingdom in Psalm 104? You see, the first thing that we see in Psalm 104 is this, that the story doesn't begin with the earth. The story doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with our experience of life and of faith. The story begins with God. Look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment. You see, as the psalm continues, as I said earlier, what this passage is doing is it's reflecting on God's creating the world. The first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, faith does not begin with us. Faith begins with God. Because in the beginning, there was God and there was nothing else. And he created all things. And as the passage begins to unfold, um, we, we, see that we see in verse 3, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides in the wings of the wind picture is of the creator building, constructing his world as he would see fit. He builds this chamber on the clouds as if to say, 
We know what it is to have a house with an upper room in it, maybe a guest room, as we see occasionally in Scripture. And yet what the Scriptures tell us here is that God's upper room, His chambers, is on the clouds. The clouds are His chariots. This is a picture of the God Almighty, the One who is powerful to, to build all things. God who is greater than anything that we could imagine, as is evidenced by His creative power as the passage unfolds. He set the earth on its foundation, we read in verse 5, so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. As terrifying and as amazing and as powerful as nature can often be to us as human beings living in a world, even in a world with air conditioning and central heating, the picture is that God is so much greater than anything in this world because He is the one who's made it all. But jump down to verses 7 and 8. Not only do we see the power of God as the beginner of this story, but look how it, look, notice what it says. At your rebuke, speaking of the deep, the, sea, the waters, at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. Not only is God powerful, but it's His authority that establishes all of this. He rebukes nature. I think often we all find ourselves wanting to rebuke nature, even from extreme heat or extreme cold, from terrible storms. And yet at God's rebuke, nature has to respond. Not only because He's powerful, but by His very authority. Because it is His to control. It is His, by His right, He rules all things. It is who he is. The story begins with God. But it's this notion of, of authority that I want us to, to consider specifically this morning. I heard the story a number of years ago of an Englishman named Tim Fitzheim who decided to set a record by being the first person to sail across the English Channel in a bathtub. And after he had made a public announcement that he was going to do this, and after he had purchased said, Third, third of a ton bathtub from the best bathtub company in the whole world, apparently. He realized, he learned that the English Channel is one of the busiest shipping lanes in all of the world. But what did he do? He sought the authority of those in charge. And so he spoke with the British Royal Navy. He spoke with the French Navy and got the appropriate regulations covered for his ship. He even wrote to the Queen herself, who, who responded back to him to his amazement wishing him well, giving him full permission to do what he was about to do, and celebrating with him in excitement at what he was about to do. But as he's in this bathtub, sailing across the English Channel, a large oil tanker is in view. And what you have to understand about a large oil tanker making its way through the English Channel is, it takes them miles to be able to stop. From the time that they cut their engines to the time when the, the, the boat, the ship, sorry, physically stops, it takes over a mile for that to happen. And as he's making his way across, he realizes that he's in the direct path of this ship. And so he begins to row hard, and he row harder and row harder, until he remembers what was communicated to him through his sailing classes and through his communication with the navies. You see, the tanker has to give right of way to the smaller vessel. And so he gets on his radio, and he's a registered ship, by the way. He gets on his radio, and he contacts the tanker, 
And he says, I have the right of way based on the authority given to him. And you know what? The tanker has to veer to give him the right of way to make his way across the channel. It's because, not because of his power, but because of the authority that was given to him that this is possible. God's authority is not derived. It doesn't come from somewhere else. It is rooted in who he is, but by his authority, he sets the world in its place. And he sets the boundary of the world. In fact, Genesis 1.14 says he sets the lights in the sky for signs, for seasons, and for days, and for years. You see, by God's power and by God's authority, he created a world that runs the way that he would have it to run. So that the seasons happen according to his direction. So that the years go by according to his wisdom and might. Reflecting on these things in Acts chapter 17, a man named Paul, a follower of Jesus, is preaching to a pagan culture, a culture that does not worship the God of the Bible. But he makes this point, he says, God determined allotted periods and and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. By God's power and by God's authority, he created the world. And he set it in motion so that it would run according to his wisdom and plan so that humanity might seek after him and might know him. When faith, when our faith is reduced to our experience, when all we see is a private matter between us and this being that we cannot see, ultimately the pressure becomes on us to figure out life and every part of it. But where the Bible begins is to say, you are not the measure of what is true. You see, what the Bible says to us is this says that the story of our existence begins with this being that was not created, that knows no beginning and will know no end, who brought everything that we could ever begin to imagine into existence by the word of his power, as we read earlier from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If this is the case, what do we do? What do we do when belief is difficult? What do we, what do, we do when our circumstances seem to crush us? When our own battle with sinfulness seems too much. The scriptures tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. That the creation itself is screaming to us that God exists. And that he is all powerful. Even what we hear in Psalm 104 tells us that God has set the boundary points of your life. Whether this is a happy thing or a frustrating thing for you, some of those boundary points include the boundary points of Riley County and Geary County and the boundary points of Manhattan as a city so that you are here because God has brought you here. God has set the boundary points of your life. He's given you the parents that he's given you. He's given you the kids that he's given you. By his power and by his authority, he has established the the entirety of the world And he has chosen to place you in it where he has and when he has by his wisdom that we might seek him. The other thing I want to say in very simple terms is this. If faith is difficult for you, if times get overwhelming, go outside. Look at the stars. Look at the trees. Look at the animals. Spend time with another human being. God made this world to shout out his glory and his power, his beauty and his truth. And he did so by making it work in amazing ways. For some of you, go to the lab. 
and look under the microscope and see what you can see. At details that we could never see without help. But that also, in their minutiae, de de declare to us the, the same glory of God. And the point here is not to say that your daily experience of life, your frustrations, your struggle, your hardships are not insignificant. That is not the point at all. I'm not telling you to look outside and get over whatever is ailing you. Rather, what I'm saying to you is bring all of it to God and ask Him to help you look through it to see Him in the world, in the creation, and even in your circumstances. God is the starting point for all of life and for all of faith. There's a second implication of this modern story that we often find ourselves living by, and it's this. I wonder if we don't often find ourselves reducing God to being a matter of cause and effect. Think of it like this. When I was a child, uh, when I was growing up, there was a show on TV called That's Incredible, hosted by John Davidson, who I think is doing dinner theater now somewhere. Um, That's Incredible was this show where it was a half-hour show where they would show these amazing feats of people doing crazy things. It was before Stupid Human Tricks, if you remember that. One of the things that would show up periodically on the show is these great domino setups where you know, people would spend days and days and days and days setting up these vast thousand-piece domino th things where they'd set them up in a line to make these great designs and they'd go upstairs and downstairs. They'd fall off the cliffs and drop into something else. And the, the basic setup is you, you take the time and you set up the dominoes on end and then you push the one and the whole thing falls on it and it's this really cool thing. Every once in a while, this would show up on this TV show, and it would amaze me. In fact, it wasn't until probably near the time when I was an adult that I thought that there were other purposes for dominoes other than setting them up like this and watching them fall over. But it's that experience of seeing something that complex that starts with a simple cause. You push the, one, the first domino over, and everything topples after it. Do you see God that way? We may never admit it, but think about it for a moment. Do we see God as one who, sa who says to us this, if you set up your metaphorical dominoes in order and tap the first one first and everything is just aligned perfectly, then your life will fall into this beautiful experience just as you dreamed that it would. Do we live that way? Do we live expecting that if we do one thing, the next thing will fall exactly as we plan and the next thing after that and the next thing after that and the next thing after that? But I ask you this morning, what do you do when that doesn't happen, when it doesn't work out that way? When you try hard, you work hard, you think hard, you pray hard, and your plan still doesn't happen the way that you thought it would unfold. We often live as if God is this, this thing that we can manipulate as simply a matter of cause and effect. We get the cause going, God sustains it so that the effect happens the way we want it to happen, and we're happy. I probably don't have to tell most of you that it doesn't work that way. It simply doesn't work that way. But notice the way that it does work in Psalm 104, beginning in verse 10. Notice what the writer says there. He says in verse 10, You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. From your lofty abode, in verse 12, verse 13, You water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. It's hinted at early on in verses 3 and 4 that God is not only the one who created all things and has gotten it established, but that he's actively present in his creation. 
But what the bulk of this psalm tells us is that our daily experience is that God is the one at work through even the most basic things of life. He feeds the plants in verses 14 and 16. He feeds the animals in 10 through 12, 14, 17 through 18 in verse 21. He feeds man. He gives us what we need to live. All of the animals look to him. God is actively, personally providing for his creation. He created it to run in such a way that the seasons happen and the days happen and that the years happen. But that does not mean that he is absent from it. From your daily, in your daily experience, God is present and at work. Look specifically, though, at verses 14 and 15. There we read, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God provides. God makes it work every day. Every drop of rain that falls is sent from the Lord. Every plant that grows is God growing that plant. And yet at the very same time, we acknowledge with the, with the rest of Scripture that God has made this world in such a fascinating way that he's made these processes that the plants grow in, with sunlight and water and with appropriate soil. And that we as people grow with the appropriate nutrients. But what he's telling us here is not only does God provide through in our daily things, that God actually establishes the very work that we do. You see, he mentions wine and oil and bread. You know why he mentions those things? All of those things come from the created world. And yet all of those things exist because of mankind's application of work to them. Wine doesn't grow on trees, but grapes do. Oh, they don't grow on trees. They grow on vines. But you know, you're with me, right? Grapes grow and man takes them and develops it into wine. The same thing with oil from olives. The same thing with bread. The wheat grows and man shapes it and forms it and makes it as we, we see even before us this morning into something that would strengthen us. God is establishing the work that all of us do. Tomorrow morning... When you get up, and some of you will go fly a helicopter, others of you will go to a lab, others of you will stare at a computer screen, God is establishing your work. God is, God is present with you in that. He is providing for you and for others through your efforts. He has created the world to work this way, and he is actively present in it. Look then down in, in conclusion at verse 27. He says, These all look to you to give them the, their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. The summary statement of dependence of, on God through all things. But the beauty of it is, is very simply this. God doesn't say... If you're thirsty, pray, and you won't be thirsty anymore. The implication is, if you're thirsty, God has given water so that we might be satisfied. If your plants in your garden are looking brown, we add water to them to, to, bring, to give them life. Because that's the way that God created the world. And at the very same time, God is present in that. There is nothing that you have that you needed that God has not given to you. 
Jesus taught his disciples, as we prayed earlier today, to give us this day our daily bread. We ask God to provide for our bread. It doesn't mean we don't work for it. It means he provides it to us through our labor. It means he provides for us through our efforts. Your effort matters, and God uses it. You see the dignity that it gives us as human beings. The place that God has placed us in his created world, such that he is present on a daily basis, providing for you, even as you work. There's one more implication, though, that I want us to consider as we look to the end of Psalm 104. The third implication of this modern story is this. When we assume that faith is simply based on our experience, that God is simply a private matter, when we see God as simply a matter of cause and effect, the result in this third implication is right and wrong becomes arbitrary. It becomes up for vote or up for the strongest to make the rules and rule everyone else. It ends up being rooted in what we can accomplish. We decide what's right and decide what's wrong by what we can actually do. And if we can do it, it must be right. If you're familiar with the movie Jurassic Park, you know that this is one of the main themes of that film. When at one point, one of the, the experts who's brought to this island where they have made dinosaurs says this. He says something to the effect of, you've asked all along, can we make dinosaurs? But you never asked the question, should we? That's where this modern story leaves us. When God is private, when God is cause and effect, right and wrong become arbitrary. But look at the last five verses of Psalm 104 and hear the prayer that is prayed there. The message that comes forth is that God is at work restoring his creation. You see, God set the world in motion. God created it from nothing. He's upholding it in our daily experience. But the third thing is that he's at work restoring the world that he has made. It acknowledges that God is taking the world somewhere. Notice, beginning in verse 31, again, it reads as if the writer is responding to all that he's considered through this prayer. He says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. God's glory and His delight is in what He has made. He rejoices in it. He celebrates the beauty and the complexity and at times even the simplicity of the world that he's made that we get to live in. But in verse 32, as I just read, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who, who touches the mountains and they smoke. God is present to judge at the very same time. God rules over what he has made. But then notice the final response beginning in verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. This is the response of worship and obedience of the writer. That he looks at what God has made and he looks at God's presence in his life. And he says, my adequate response is to worship, to sing the praises of this one who has made all of this and who sustains all of this. And he even says, may my meditation be pleasing, as if to acknowledge he's the one who determines whether or not my meditation is pleasing. It is not something I determine myself. And then at the beginning of verse 35, let all the sinners, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. This isn't so much an us versus them. 
as if it's an opportunity for us to huddle about and say, may all those bad people that we don't like, may they be rid, rid of our lives forever and ever. This is from the perspective of God saying, he made this world and he delights in it. And he will not let the corruption of this world win the day. This is his delight in what he's made. You see where this leaves us is in this place of considering where are we in this story as it unfolds. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that this isn't the whole of the story. Because as time passes, as more and more is revealed by God to his people, and God sends this man named Jesus, who was not created, who has always existed. We read in the book of Colossians, that in other places, that Jesus was there in the moment of creation. Because all things were created through him. And he holds all things together. You see, the end of the story is not this, this being who is great and powerful, but also present. He made his greatness and his power and his presence known specifically by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to live not in sin and rebellion as we would live, but to live in righteousness. To put on display the beauty and the truth of God in all the things that he did and the way that he treated people. The way that he lived and then in dying in our place and then in rising again. This is the hope that we have and this is the means by which this restoration of all of creation is happening. Beloved, what this all boils down to is this. If we live by this modern story, whether we know it or not, if we're living by that, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves at the center of our existence. That's the nature of sin. That's the essence of sin. Sin is our rejection of God's authority. It is, it is our reduction of Him to be our servant who does what we want for our pleasure according to our plan. And it is our assumption that we are in charge. Is that your story? Do you know that story as it works out in your life? You see, there's much in this world that tells us that that's the way it is. There's much in this world that tells us that we can know anything, that we can be anywhere, that we can accomplish anything. What we fail to see, though, is where that leaves us. Because when we assume that because of gadgets and vehicles and insight and wisdom of others, when we embrace that fully and that's all we see, where that leaves us is with an amazing amount of pressure. It's the pressure that says, I'm going to risk the shame of not knowing enough. It's the pressure that says, you have the ability because of the way the world works to know amazing things. And if you don't know it, there's something wrong with you. We feel guilt for where we can't be because we feel this pressure to be everywhere all the time because the progress of humanity tells us that we can be everywhere, that we can be in two places at once. That we can be having multiple conversations at once. And it also tells us that we see failure in what we can't do because of this pressure that says, you have the ability, you can do this, so why aren't you doing it? The danger is that all of that we label as sin. And we bear this burden and we're exhausted and we're worn out and we're terrified and we're anxious. Because we look at this world and says, we should be able to be everywhere, know everything, and do anything. And yet by his creation, 
by his sustaining power and by his restoration, God is telling you, no. He has set boundaries in your life. Where the passage begins and where the passage ends is this call to worship. Look again at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then the very, the very final words. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. You see, what God invites us into on a daily basis is to look at his world, to look at his presence, and to consider the hope that awaits in the future. To say he is here and that he is at work. He invites us into worship, which is not lip service, which is not mere ritual, but it is the ritual and it is the words that we use to shape how we live, to form how we approach the world that we live in, to remind us that God is real, that he is personally involved in the world that we live in. It's the invitation to live in relationship with this one who created, who sustains, and who restores his world. And that happens because by his power, by his authority, by his very presence, God sent his son to be present with us so that we might know him. And so that we, his people, might be restored. So that we, his people, might be changed. Let's pray.